all beans, y'all. Let's get it. Welcome back to Calling All Beings, baby. I'm your host, DJ, here with my amazing co-host, Nathan. Y'all about to know him because he's going to be on That UFO Podcast with Andy. Everybody's about to know. Thank <laughs> you so much. It's such a pl- I'm so happy that you're going to be going on there, Nathan. Thanks, man. All right. And and you know what's going to happen. It's about to get real up in here, right? Mm, that's what I heard. Yeah, because we have him, the man himself. What we're talking about, man, this man, okay, this man, you know what? You notice I'm wearing black tonight. Uh, very professional. Y- yeah, because this man operates in the shadows. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This man here, for an appetizer in the Air Force, he was a combat controller, the most difficult school physically and mentally in the Air Force, bar none. Sorry, PJs. I hope you're not mad at me. And, <laughs> and then after that, he was an AFOSI special agent. So party people! Put your hands together for New Mexico's own Mr. Rick Doty! Woo! Yes! Rick Doty! Yes! Jimmy Church. Okay, you had him first, but we got him now, baby. Look at this. I got some hair. I can, I can, have, I can have some dark hair. I, you know, I may not have the cool guitars on the wall, but what I do have is... Uh, Hey, Rick. So so anyway, Rick, how you doing? It's so nice to have you. Great, great to have you on, Rick. <clears throat> great introduction. Thanks, DJ. <laughs> See? We, we're bringing it real here. We're not messing around, Rick, man. No, we're not messing no. around. Uh, but, no, we love to have fun. Uh, we like to have our... Um, and you'll see my voice will calm down. I'll sound like a normal person. But <laughs> but we, we do like to have our... our um, our UFO talk, which we absolutely love and respect with a touch of humor because that's authentic. And as soon as you're not authentic, then uh, people like you can sniff out that somebody's a fake. And uh, listeners also can sniff that out that aren't as astute as yourself. And uh, that's not us. So with that, um, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. Rick, first question, and we're going to pass it back and forth between my brilliant co-host and I. So you were a combat controller before AFOSI? No, 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 no. I was, <laughs> I was okay. a combat controller before I went into OSI. That's I was in the regular Air Force first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, then I got out, went to college, mm-hmm. and then I joined OSI. Okay. And, okay. And so, so that's 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 the uh, yeah that's how it happened. But that's like, is that not the hardest the hardest school the Air Force has was combat control. Well, yeah, it is. Uh, I believe it was uh, back then. But I came in uh, back in 1968, 69. What? Yes. You don't Uh, look like you're that. What are you doing? I'm 71 years old, believe it or not. Yes, I am. My goodness, man. He looks like he's... I keep in shape. I I try to keep in shape. Yeah. But but back in those days, uh, combat controllers... Uh, we were we were called combat controllers, but we were uh, uh, assigned to Ford Air Controller units mm-hmm. um, and uh, tactical control flight units. 
And a lot of our training was army training. Mm -hmm. This is 68, 69 timeframe. So the Air Force didn't have the program they have now in special tactics mm -hmm. uh, back in those days. Back in those days, when you go through, went to, went to basic training and you were selected uh, for a special operations uh, assignment, you went to a personal assessment course at Lackland. And they cons it consisted of PJ, uh, combat controllers, and tactical intelligence pipeline students. And so out of my flight, there were 54 of us. Uh, and you go through, everyone went through the same introductory training. You had to go through swim, a swim uh, uh, course, the, the uh, altitude chamber. Um, you carried the rope and the log every morning. You did exercises. Mm -hmm. And that at the um, fifth week mark is a six week course is the fifth week mark. You were just, you were picked for what you, I, I wanted to be a combat controller because one of my brothers, uh, my brother was in the army, but one of his best friends was a combat controller. Hmm. And so I wanted to be one of them. Everybody else wanted to be PJs. And so they picked you hmm. and you went into one or the other. The tactical intelligence specialists were all people with, real funny last names and already spoke intelligent. <laughs> already spoke English. So you knew where they were going. Got it. Uh, got it. Chinese, Russian, and, and so forth. And so uh, that's how you picked. And then from there, you went to the pipeline school. Uh, you went through uh, jump school and uh, and all the, all the different uh, courses in it. It took about uh, 60, uh, 64, 66 weeks of training. Yeah, I knew it was over a year, and you're on flight status at that point. You're on right. You're on flying status, so you're making. Yep. it. I mean, I have no doubt, Rick. If you would have continued in that career field, you would have ended up in the 24th STS at at Bragg. <laughs> so, I have no yeah, doubt about in that. Fact, <laughs> I was assigned to a unit in um, just before I got out. I got out in Germany uh, to uh, uh, in Bad Tolz uh, to the the 612 Tactical Control Flight. And that was a predecessor for, uh, it was called Project Rainbow. We had PJs, we had tie caps, tactical air uh, control party, mm -hmm. uh, and we had uh, uh, the weather people, the combat weather people, mm -hmm. yep. uh, which was something new. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, we kind of got along. I mean, there were a few fights here and there, you know, with the PJs, because they were all, it was always our competition. I knew uh, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always our competition. You know, we wore the scarlet braids, and they mm -hmm. wore the maroon maroon braids, and people yeah. would get us mixed up, call us PJs or call them CCDs, and so and people are angry. Yeah. <laughs> now let, let me yes. ask a dumb let me ask a dumb question as a non uh, military person. What what is a PJ? What, uh, I don't know what what's the difference. A PJ there? is a, a pair of rescue. Got Their it. job yeah. was combat rescue, search and rescue. Uh, they would go out and, and search uh, for down pilots mm -hmm. uh, and, and search and rescue on the ground. Uh, they were real famous in Vietnam, mm -hmm. uh, did some um, remarkable things. Uh, a lot of them, uh, I think the, there was two or three Medal of Honor winners among PJs. Uh, in fact, I have one living uh, not too far from me who uh, was uh, one of the uh, PJs who went in and rescued uh, a team, uh, two two members of a team up on uh, in Laos. I don't know if you ever heard of Lima Site 85. 
You, I'm sure no, you did. I, 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 I don't know if I've heard of that site, but I knew there was things going on in Laos that weren't supposed to be going on in Laos. Yeah, he was a PJ out of uh, play cool, but he he went in uh, and picked up, up at, a, at a just just Google Lima site eighty five and you you'll you'll probably read a story. Okay, but that's what PJs did. And combat controllers, we were different. Although there was a lot of uh, uh, the same training we went through, but combat controllers, our motto was first there. We would be the terminal controllers on the ground uh, in a combat area. We would first there, we would jump in and we would call in all the other aircrafts. Uh, we would we would set them up in air, air sectors and we would bring them in troop drops, cargo drops, uh, wh whatever. We would set up what we call a box. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure DJ knows all about this uh, box, box where you you come in on a certain heading, you <laughs> drop your load and then you take off and 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 then you we'd hold you in a particular pattern. So we were we were a form of a combat uh, uh, traffic controller. Yep. But but we had other missions, we had direct fire support missions where we would go in and we didn't have lasers back then. Now mm -hmm. they have lasers. They laser target and the mm -hmm. plane would come in and hit the target. We had grid set patterns where we mm -hmm. give them a grid uh, they would have the same map that we would have hopefully <laughs> right and GRS, they, yep. they would they would yeah exactly yeah mm -hmm. yeah yep. and so and that's what a, a, a combat uh, controller did and then tactical intelligence there i think they're called um special reconnaissance now hmm. uh but they would go into areas behind the line so to speak and because they we were all linguists and, um, and, 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 and operate behind the line. And then they had combat weather. They would jump in with us, uh, and, and they would be the weather people on the ground. Those are my favorite people. And I used to go on trips, Rick, uh, like on the Talons and we'd carry a linguist, an Intel linguist type person. I always want to hang out, eat dinner with them. They're like so interesting. They're so not air crew, but they're the most fascinating people. But, um, anyway, all right. We got to get in some UFOs or people are going to start throwing tomatoes <laughs> yeah. at, at their screen right now. I want to hear Rick talk about Crossroads evil. So I anyway, could go, I could go on about this other stuff all I night. Could, this is fascinating. Oh, yeah. I, we haven't, we haven't yeah. even scratched the surface. I told Rick both and Nathan, his career was so much. I, I thought I had an exciting career flying talents. His was much more exciting than mine. But anyway, go ahead, go ahead Nathan. Go ahead with yeah, your question. Well, uh, so, yeah, as a segue, I mean, how did you transition from combat control to Air Force OSI? How, how did, did they come to you? Did you seek that out? How did that occur? Well, my father, uh, I came from a military family. My father was a colonel uh, mm -hmm. in the Air Force. Uh, he was a pilot during Korea. He got shot down over Korea. Mm. Uh, he was rescued behind enemy lines by the Greek army. So wow. he loves the Greeks. You can, could never say anything bad about the Greeks. And then, um, he never flew again after that. I mean, mm. it wasn't necessarily because he was injured, but he just decided to branch off. So he became a intelligence officer. Mm -hmm. Um, my father was originally, his family was from Massachusetts that my father went to Amherst college. Okay. Uh, and before he went in the military, he, he was interested in languages, so he, he studied Russian. Uh, Amherst back in those days was a pretty pretty big language school area. I mean, you, if you wanted to learn a language, you're, uh, so he, he, he majored in Russian studies. And this was in the 40s when right after the World War II. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was a military brat, so to speak. My dad went into intelligence. 
Uh, he was intelligence his entire career, other than the, a few years he, he was in as a pilot. Mm. And um, he wasn't OSI, but he was in uh, in uh, offensive intelligence collectors. Uh, he spoke fluent Russian, fluent mm. German, uh, spoke some Czech. We spent a lot of time in Germany. In fact, we were in Germany when uh, Kennedy was assassinated. Oh, wow. I was, we were signed to Wiesbaden. Mm. And... Um, so when I, uh, I got out of the regular Air Force, I went to college, I wanted to be a teacher. Mm. And so I majored in education, but then I also got interested in political science, um, a somewhat of a good debater. So I, okay. I actually switched majors to political science. I got a degree, a degree in political science with a minor in education. And I tried to teach, but then I realized I didn't have the patience <laughs> uh, to teach. <laughs> it's I, hard. Uh, we were, yeah, I I did I did student teaching in a in a mm. in an inner city school in Tacoma, okay. Washington. I oh. went to college at Pacific Lutheran University, which is in Tacoma. Okay, and um, I decided I want to branch out. And um, I got a call from a guy, well, actually a professor of mine, who was a very 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 liberal professor, mm. very liberal. Mm -hmm. But he gave me a name of a person to contact uh, hmm. about a job. Okay. And I did. And um, roundabout way, I, I decided to go into OSI, Air Force Office Special. Well, I was an intelligence career field um, with, with initially with DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. Hmm. And then uh, I went to the OSI Academy and uh, the DIA school, CIA, and that's how I ended up in OSI. That wow. is awesome, man. I, I told people how everybody in the Air Force fears OSI. <laughs> <So> <laughs> he knows yeah. that. He's nodding his head. Yeah. All right, Nathan, get to UFOs before All somebody. Right. Yes. I'm going to get shot up, man. I got it. I got I'm gonna it. I'm going to get fragged right in front of Rick Doty. Let's go. We can't, ha we can't have that. So, yeah, so this week, uh, a shout out to one of our, our guests in the audience, uh, uh, James Iandoli. Uh, this was kind of his brainchild to spend a week in the UFO community, the content creator community and talk a little bit about crash retrieval. And so we've got a lot of shows happening across the the group of folks that, that put out content looking at this topic. And, you know, so excited to have you on to kind of get your perspective, not only on, you know, kind of what you know w within that space, but also we want to talk a little bit about what's happening now too. Uh, but, but before we get to now, I think I want to start with the past. In your knowledge, as far as you you know, and uh, you know, as you're probably familiar, Jacques Vallée recently published uh, his book Trinity, and uh, yes. co-written co by Paula Harris. It, what, it, it was was Trinity or Roswell really the first sort of craft crash that 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 you are aware of? Well, when I was at Kirtland Air Force Base, uh, I had the um, opportunity to be briefed into a special access program, a project Aquarius. And that involved the historical uh, connection between the United States government and uh, ETs, uh, UAPs and UFOs. We didn't call them UAPs back then with all UFOs right. or uh, identified crafts. I mean, we knew what they were. So we call them identified uh, aerial uh, crafts and the, the briefing that I received in 1979 uh, encompassed crash retrieval when we, United States government, government first got into the program. Mm. 
And uh, the first uh, part of the briefing uh, was Roswell, the Roswell crash. Although uh, actually the craft crashed in Corona, New Mexico, which is mm -hmm. north of Roswell. And uh, what we were told, what we saw pictures of, what we saw Lone Army film a recovery of, is that during the summer of 1947, there were two ET crafts flying over New Mexico. Mm. And um, these crafts during an electric storm in New Mexico. Now, DJ, you've been in New Mexico, you know how vicious electrical storms can be. And what we found out, what we, not me, me but what our government found out later was apparently these crafts had never encountered lightning. And somehow these during the storm, they were struck by lightning. They collided to two ET crafts. One landed near Corona, New Mexico, and one landed west uh, of Socorro, New Mexico, out near Horse Mesa. Now, the Corona crash had actually two sites. One, the debris field, which was the antenna portion of the craft. Hmm. The second crash, the second site was actually the craft. There were actually pictures posted on the Internet some years ago about this, about, regarding this craft. An archaeological team first found it, found uh, some alien bodies, uh, dead, dead bodies, and one live alien, one mm -hmm. live ET. Mm -hmm. um, Brazel, uh, his ranch was the location of the debris field, the antenna portion of the craft, which is miles away from the actual craft. And that was all recovered in the summer of 1947 by the United States uh, Army out of Roswell. The second craft crashed way in a very, very remote area of Catron County in western New Mexico, up in the mountain. That craft site wasn't found until 1949 by a rancher. He was moving his cattle from a lower grazing area up to a higher one, and he found his craft. Well, the ETs inside the craft never got out so they were all decayed inside the craft when he found he didn't know what it was he immediately notified the Catron county sheriff now you gotta understand that this is remote in new mexico phones were very very uh remote uh distance from locations it took him two days to get to a phone to call the county sheriff it took the, the sheriff 11 days to get up to the crash site wow and when he got up to the crash site, he realized, well, this isn't this isn't something I don't I know what to do with. So then he notified the, the state police, the state police, New Mexico State Police. They didn't know what to do. So, anyways, they notified at that time the Air Force, the Kirtland Air Force Base, and they responded, recovered it, and took the craft uh, to uh, Kirtland and then on to Los Alamos. Los Alamos, that's really interesting. The, um, the live ET went to Los Alamos. Now, contrary to a lot of uh, what other people said, um, the first crash uh, that that, uh, that was taken to Roswell and part of the craft was flown uh, to Wright-Patterson. But the ETs and the bodies were flown to Los Alamos. They needed a, a, hydro, a, a cryogenic facility, which they didn't have at Wright-Pat, but they had at Los Alamos to, to store the bodies. They didn't, know what, they didn't know what they were. I mean, they didn't know if they, how they were going to decay. They were biologically different than us, 
And so they needed to store them someplace, and that's why they went to Los Alamos. The live E.T. lived from 47 to 1952 at Los Alamos. If I were to ask you to put a percentage on your, your level of confidence that this is the case as it actually unfolded, what percentage would you give that? 100%. Mm. It wasn't just the briefing that I got because what, number one, let me go back a little bit. I was never interested in the subject of UFOs as a kid. I was never interested. My father never spoke about him. Uh, my brother, on the other hand, John is older than me. He was a, uh, he was fascinated in the subject. We roomed together. We always had a room together mm. and uh, he would go out and buy true magazines back that were they're published back in the sixties. He also bought the the first book that George Adamski had had published, mm -hmm. and and he tried would try to get me to read these things, but I was always hung up with Zane Grey. I loved westerns, and yes. so I was never interested in the subject. Uh, nowhere in OSI's academy, the DIA intelligence operations course, or the CIA course, was the subject of UFOs or ETs mentioned. None, mm -hmm. never. Not even in any way whatsoever. So when I got the Kirtland and I was involved in an investigation that include that involved a strange object that landed in a remote training area, um, I didn't know what it was. Uh, of course, my uh, initial uh, thought was uh, probably was maybe something foreign, like maybe a Soviet craft that flew in from uh, Mexico or something to that effect. When I sat in this briefing and they started telling telling us, and there were a, a, other people in this briefing. It was The briefing was done by an Air Force colonel. When they started telling us and showing us pictures of recovery film uh, that, that is an older film, you could, you could tell it was old, mm -hmm. about UFOs and about ETs, I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I sat there and I thought this was some sort of a, a psychological operations. I, I thought they were going to try to psych us out on something and then we were to go out and run some exercise. That's what I thought. Yeah. But as we got into it and as we, we, we got more in depth into what we, what we were seeing and the evidence that was presented to us, I realized, my God, this is true. Now this briefing occurred at the Western uh, West, West Kirtland air force base. And the OSI office was on the East side. I was driving back and I had to pull off the road and I sat there for probably 15 or 20 minutes trying to reconcile what I had just seen and what <laughs> information I just got. Yeah. I still had some doubts in my mind. Like, you know, is this, is there some other type of plan do they have? Is this some kind of a psychological operations? Mm -hmm. But when I got back to the office, I immediately got, uh, got my tickets punched for a special access program, mm. meaning we had our own, uh, 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 security, uh, special access security terminal in the OSI office, meaning a teletype system. Mm -hmm. We could get top secret info in. Got it. And the operator was a, was a civilian, and you know he would feed the stuff to whoever had access to it. Mm. And uh, now let let me talk about this real quick, and DJ will will understand this. Just because you have a high level of security clearance, you a top secret, to doesn't mean you have access. You have to have a need to know mm -hmm. in order to have access to something. Okay. So there were other OSI agents in the office. They didn't have the same need to know that I did. Mm -hmm. So I got, I started receiving all these 
uh, teletypes, top secret code word uh, teletypes about sightings and landings all over the world. Mm. And with all this, the totality of it put together, I realized that what I, the briefing I, I received was 100% factual. Wow. And, and there's no frame of reference to consider people. It's funny that everybody's calling and texting us when we're on air. Cause it's happening to both me and Rick, but um, it, it's, it's, yeah, me too. I know. I know there's no frame of reference to consume this information, Rick. You know what I mean? Like you don't have a yes. frame of reference to go, Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. There's, they just landed down a runway eight. I got it. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> everything's new. And, and Rick, how many folks were in that, uh, room with you in that initial briefing was it uh, who were who were getting this for the first time with you uh all of them were intelligence officers uh it was myself and one other osi agent and i i don't know exactly number i would say probably not more than 20 okay like, this is where his resistance training is coming in he learned this at the ranch i'm just kidding <laughs> right. all right so but, Rick, if, yeah. if you don't mind we're we have a we have a guy from australia that has called in to ask you a question about Luis Elizondo, Stephen Greer. So we're going to like, like the beings, we're going to project forward in time, but then we're going to return back to Kirtland. Okay. 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 <laughs> Here we go. Grant. DJ. How are you, buddy? <laughs> this guy is such an amazing artist. Um, he is able to digitally put people's faces on other people's faces. It's like John Travolta movie. It, it's nuts. So, Grant, hello. Say hello to Rick Doty and go ahead, brother. Uh, well, firstly, DJ and Nathan, thanks for having me on, guys. I really enjoy uh, you know the content you guys put out. And, and Rick, it's a, it's a pleasure to to make your acquaintance. So um, so thank you for taking a, a question or two from me today. Okay, you get Grant. a question. That's all you get. A you question. All right, I'll, I'll limit it to one. Night. So uh, I, I guess the question I had for you is, you know, um, based on your background in obviously – you know, counterintelligence and the network that you've established over the years. Uh, you, I think you're uniquely positioned to probably answer this question or at least opine. Um, so, so Dr. Stephen Greer has publicly asserted that Lou Elizondo uh, is essentially a fear-mongering disinformation agent. And Lou, Lou Elizondo has publicly insinuated that Greer is, uh, has hoaxed C five events for for personal gain. So, uh, I'm interested to get your uh, opinion on the Greer Elizondo dichotomy that that exists at the moment. Who 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 are we to believe? Well, my own opinion, uh, and that's all I do. My, my opinion. I know Steve Greer. I know him uh, quite well. Uh, I've been unacknowledged. I've spoke with him many times. Uh, I don't know Lou Alessandro. I have never met him in person. I love him, of course, but I've never met him in person. Uh, but I do know hey, his Rick, background. Rick, I'm really Rick. Excuse me for one I, second. I'm really sorry to interrupt you. Uh, we're getting a, an interruption in your signal. Is it possible that you could disconnect and then and then uh, come back in into the backstage? Uh, go ahead and talk real quick. Let me see how it's working. Yeah, I think I'm losing you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. If, if you, you drop lose... and then use the same link, you'll come right back and we'll, we'll put you back on. Yeah, it seems to work, so I apologize you want me for to, that. You want me to go off? Yes, please, yes, and then yes. just come right back. Because without okay. you, we have no show. Okay. Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> okay thank you, Rick. Yeah, okay, great question, Grant. Grant. 
Uh, so <laughs> uh, the un unidentified celebrity review, review Grant is a, a huge fan of theirs and with good reason. And he produces this amazing, I don't know if it's CG. I don't know what the hell it is. I just know I can't do it. I love your content and thank you oh, thank so much you. for what you do. Uh, anything that can add some smiles on folks' dolls. So if it, uh, if it adds a bit of levity to the topics that are serious, then, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, We're all for it. Uh, what time is it right now? Is it one time zone throughout the continent of Australia? Uh, so I, I'm in Melbourne, Australia, and it's uh, it's about eleven thirty in the morning. So okay, I'm just so taking my my mid morning coffee break from my uh, my day to day to nice. uh, to have a chat with you guys. I love Fantastic. it. I'm I'm so glad we didn't keep you awake or something. Hopefully, uh, Rick is going to come back. Otherwise, more people are going to throw tomatoes at it. But, uh, <laughs> the virtual tomatoes, which I'm sure Grant could help us CGI. It might, might yeah, turn into a, turn into a Yeah, turn into a deep fake uh, masterclass maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'd actually be interested in doing a whole show on, on sort of the deep fakes and your thoughts on, you know, kind of where we're going with uh, you know, sort of journalism, information, the information in the public sphere, you know, how we can... What what will we be able to do to verify the sort of truthfulness of what we see? Well, it's 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 actually fascinating what people can do now, and and what uh, kind of got me into uh, exploring the the deep fake area just for a bit of fun, really, is um, I can't remember his handle, but there's a there's a guy on um, on Twitter who does these absolutely incredibly amazing deep fakes of Tom Cruise. Oh yeah, and man, they're those. just and yeah. I think um, creepy. Yeah, and and Justin Bieber has actually fooled recently, where he actually commented on a on a, on one of the videos, thinking that it was the real Tom Cruise. So amazing! Uh, it's and and he's got the voice down pat for it as well, and everything for it. But it's it's crazy what what can be done now with uh, machine learning, and yeah, it's it's, and we're just uh, it's getting started an exciting on that. future. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, and when we laughed. <laughs> Rick Doty was talking about. I know Stephen Greer. I don't lo know Lou Elizondo, but dot 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 okay i know of lou's background i know where he worked in the pentagon what he did so i can vouch what he, he claimed he did and where he worked uh but but that's about as far as i'm gonna go i don't i don't know uh the information that he's providing is accurate or not i i trust Stephen, and he's he's done a, a years and years of research into this area and so I, I trust uh, I trust what Stephen said. But I'm not going to take one side or the other at this time. <laughs> oh my goodness! I, your career in reality television. I'm just kidding. Um, I, I re thank you very much for taking that question, Rick. Grant, we will talk to you, sir. We'll talk to you, sir, because I Absolutely. think Nathan has just built an episode oh, around yeah. you and your work. Okay, we're going to do it. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Yeah, appreciate it. Grant. So we'll have you. We're going to have you on. I'm going to say yeah, right here. I'll right. be happy to join you guys anytime. Thanks. Thanks. And I uh, hope the rest of the show goes well. Thank you. Namaste. Thanks, thanks guys. Thank you, right, brother. So, Rick, I guess like what's interesting to me about that answer, uh, you know, kind of what your thoughts on this. So there seems to be like a over time a fragmentation of understanding, right? So what you just described in your initial experience of this was a very, I think, clear story. You know, that you were given a briefing. There seems to be a great deal of knowledge that is understood about what, what's going on. And then as we fast forward in time to where we are now, we've got a lot of different competing narratives that are uh, sort of filling the, the airwaves here. So is that a... 
in your opinion, is that a result of us learning more out more about this than we knew before? Or is this something else? Is it a, an intentional mudding of, of the waters of what we really know? Well, I think it's uh, a number of number of reasons, but one particular one is over the years, people have taken this subject. They've uh, grasped it, whether it's uh, in a realm of believability or whether it's just for their own uh, for their own sake. And they've written books about it. They've uh, you know, movies and so forth and so on. And and what happens within the UFO community is there conf there's conflicting uh, sides to everything. The UFO community, as Phil Class said once, and we know who Phil Class was, he was a skeptic. Um, he said, "You do more harm within the UFO community to yourselves than I could do ever could do on the outside." <laughs> And that's true. There's so many backstabbers within the UFO community because one person will write a book about something. The other person will write a conflicting story about that same book, that same, uh, the book. And, and then there's a rivalry between the people within the UFO community. Yeah. And there's so much, um, you know, I can, I can honestly say that my uh, 11 years or so being in the intelligence area, and knowing what we were doing and knowing what I knew about the UFO phenomena, I can say that probably easily 60% of everything that was published is absolutely bull. Mm. <laughs> There's no truth whatsoever about a lot of the information. And, and although I, uh, I am a, uh, I like Jacques Fillet and I like, uh, Harris, the book Trinity uh, was a uh, well-written book, but the actual event in 1945, if you were to go and find the brother, brother who is still alive and talk to him, mm -hmm. uh, which some other people have done, uh, they're going to tell you a different story. Mm. Now, the state police officer that they quote in the book, I spoke with years ago when he was still alive. And he emphatically told me that what the the plane that was cra crashed was a U.S. Army plane. Hmm. It wasn't a, a a UFO. It wasn't from any other planet. It was an Air Force or Army plane, uh, Army Air Force plane. Mm -hmm. It was flying a mission. It was it was testing a very new type of radar, and so the equipment inside was classified for the Army Air Force. That's why the military treated it like it, well, like it was. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to go public and say, you know, your book is blown. I don't know what the sure. other brother said. And, and maybe there's some truth about something else in there. But uh, I know, I know the, 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 uh, the state police officer. Um, and that's what he told me. Good. So uh, you can take it whatever way you want to. Mm -hmm. You know, Rick, um, I'm going to ask you about other crashes that you think may or may not have happened. And after that, I really want to kind of get into, you know, we can get into a little bit of nuts and bolts about, I, I'd like to get your thoughts on area 51 a little bit. Obviously I'd like to get your, your thoughts. What we'll get into is a little bit of the, the 
construct of from an intelligence standpoint of how you would compartmentalize this information. And although I know nothing uh, legitimate about MJ-12, it seems like the type of a construct I would make to keep people who have a need to know from knowing. Because the Joint Chiefs need to know. Uh, the Secretary of Defense needs to know. The President needs to know. So how do I keep them from knowing? Well, I create a program where even though they have a need to know, they're not going to know. But that's beside the point. Um, how many crashes do you think? And we'll, we'll get into that. And I really want to get your what, how you feel about different things, interdimensional versus extraterrestrial, all this kind of stuff. But how many crashes do you think we've had? Do you suspect or know of which either? Well, I know of the 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 Cronin Horse Mesa crash. I know of the Kingman crash. Uh, that was in the briefing. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, there was one out uh, in uh, the middle of uh, uh, Nevada. It was near. Uh, it was called the uh, Fallen. Uh, the Fallen crash. It was near Fallen Naval Air Station or the bomber bombing range. And this was in the late fifties. Wow. Uh, there was another one in Nevada that was up uh, uh, near Duckwater. Um, and some of these haven't gotten much publicity. I mean, we, I read about them in classified documents. There have been some people talk about it. I know Stan Friedman talked about the Fallen case, but he couldn't find anything in any kind of uh, uh, open literature that, mm. that talked about that. Uh, and then there were, there was uh, another famous one in Canada along uh, a radar site in, in the dew line, um, distance early warning line, mm-hmm. uh, radar site, mm-hmm. uh, radar line, uh, that they, they were created in the fifties and sixties. There was one there that, uh, pretty, pretty, um, uh, pretty interesting case, a, a, um, retired air force, uh, excuse me, a retired Canadian forces, air force, uh, Canadian forces, mm-hmm. it was air Canadian Air Force. Canadian <laughs> Air Force. <laughs> yeah, Canadian Air Force. Um, captain. Uh, oh, excuse me. He was captain at the time. He was re- he was retired. I believe lieutenant colonel. Anyways, he talked about this at a UFO convention some years ago, hmm. where one crashed. I had never seen anything in any kind of classified, but after I heard this briefing, I'd spoke to somebody who still worked within DIA. And he confirmed to me that, yes, in fact, that happened in 1959. And I can't remember the name of the radar site, but it was along the dew line in in northern uh, Alberta, I believe, or or, uh, Saskatchewan. Mm. Um, Those are the ones that I actually knew about during my time period in in OSI. Um, Since then, I've learned about other ones. Um, I worked. When I left OSI in 1980, in 1994, I went to work for Dr. Putoff in the Institute for Advanced Studies at Austin. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you, you'll read about that in some. And uh, for that time period, uh, we we did private uh, research. I did a I was a field investigator for him. I had a DARPA clearance. I went out to different locations, and one of the sites, most fascinating site, I think the crash site that I've actually visited because before during my OSI career, I read about crashes, but I haven't, I only visited one at one time. Hmm. And that was when I was assigned to uh, area 51. But other than that, I had not actually visited the site, 
Well, in Western South Dakota, there was a, uh, a rancher near Spearfish, South Dakota, uh, which is out Western near the Wyoming border. Um, he had found some debris on his ranch. Hmm. And so he, um, he didn't know what it was. <laughs> he didn't really care much about it because it was in such a remote area that he didn't bring it up there. But some years later, two years later, he told his son who was going to take over the ranch. And so his son went out there and looked at this stuff and it started working with it, trying to drill into it. And he couldn't do that. And he thought, my gosh, this has to be something out of this world. So what he thought it was a Soviet or a Russian because it had been on the ground for a long time. Mm -hmm. he, he thought, well, maybe it was a Russian or a Soviet satellite that had crashed. And so anyways, it got back to us, the Institute for Advanced Studies. I went up there with another scientist from the, from the Institute. And when I looked at it and started analyzing it, I realized this was, in fact, ET, extraterrestrial nature. Hmm. So I tried, I called the closest Air Force Base was Ellsworth, Ellsworth Air Force Base mm -hmm. in Rapid City or west of east of rapid city and i tried to convince them to come out there I, I talked to the osi uh agent it was a sunday so i talked to the osi agent was on call he thought it was a kook call at first i'm a retired person i'm i was osi agent and i started talking to him about osi information that only osi agent would would know mm. He goes, wow, I start believing you. Well, let me see what I can do. <laughs> so the next afternoon, the Air Force came out and recovered it. And it Wait, was what, what, what was what was Hal put off doing at this point, though? Is he kind of like, Rick, why did you make this? He phone was in call? the bathroom. or something. <laughs> I mean, come on. Rick Doty's on the phone, man. Recognize. <laughs> he gave it away. To well, the I know I coordinated all this with Hal. <laughs> okay, I, I, I talked to Hal I and I told Hal and he said, I said, there's no way I could put this into a vehicle. It was a big object. Oh wow! And, and okay. transport it back. It wasn't. It wasn't a small. Was, was there a ball. corrosion? Was there any corrosion on it? No, after? not a bit no of corrosion. It's amazing. Not a bit of corrosion. Uh, so, um, hieroglyphics. Mm -hmm. Although I, I think they're more. There were more characters like Chinese characters mm -hmm. that were written on about although they weren't Chinese because it was analyzed later. Sure. I took a lot of pictures, a lot of photographs myself and this other scientist. Mm. We managed to take a little piece of something that had broken off. Now, that's amazing because you couldn't drill into this thing because mm. the, the rancher's son tried. He tried to cut it with saws, rip saws. He couldn't even make a dent into it. But mm. we got a piece we took back to the laboratory and we, and we analyzed it. But I think the, uh, you know, there are some uh, laws, federal laws under Title 50 United States Code and that we couldn't keep this. We would have had to notify the government. Come on, and I did Rick, what I why, thought. Why are we following? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I, thought I did what I, 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 you know, I know a lot of people criticized me. I talked to other people okay. about this uh, years ago and they said, you're, oh my God, you should have put it in the back of, there's no, no. way I could have lifted this thing. I mean, it's no, sad. I wouldn't either. I mean, you got to do what you, you know, what's legal because you could be held responsible and that's not something that you want to mess with. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I have to go to Area 51, um, Rick. There's a lot of, obviously, you've heard, you know, years worth of talk about this. Um, if there were a craft, 
Um, is that a place that you think that uh, the government would keep a whole craft? Or do you think it would have been given over to a private contractor like Lockheed Martin or Bigelow? What do you think the government would do if it had a whole craft? Would it be at an Area 51? No, it would be an Area 51. It would be taken there, at least during my time period. And even after that, uh, I, mean, I, I worked at Area 51 on two occasions. I was TDY there um, covering for an agent that, who had uh, got real sick and unfortunately passed away. Mm. So I was TDY there on two occasions. I was briefed into a lot of programs, not everything. I wasn't briefed into everything, mm. uh, but I was briefed into a lot of different programs. I knew what was there. I knew we did have. Uh, crafts that we were studying that we obtained, the exotic crafts that were from uh, out of this world. Um, we had uh, ETs. Uh, and so we, 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 Air Force had the Air Force Scientific Laboratories there. Uh, Sandy and the National Laboratories had a facility there. Los Alamos had a facility there. Skunk Works had a facility there. Um, now, when we talk about Area 51, we're talking about one area, Groom Lake, which was back then Death 3 Air Force Test Flight Center. And that's the official name for it, as you would know, DJ. Uh, but we also had Tonopah, Tonopah mm -hmm. Air Force Base, mm -hmm. which was even more secretive, I think, at for than, than Area 51. Because very few people knew the operating locations on Tonopah. Now, Tonopah and Area 51 or Groom Lake was all contained in the Nellis uh, test range. training range. And it, within that range, we they had a, 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 a facility called Wellington, Wellington hmm. Test Center, Jamestown Test Center. They were very highly classified locations because this is such a large area that were within that test range. They were doing some extraordinary testing of exotic technology in these different areas, hmm. uh, such as energy weapons, time travel, um, uh, inertia, uh, anti-inertia systems or anti-gravity systems. Mm -hmm. They call it an, an anti-inertia. And then on top of all that, you had a Nevada test site, or the, which is now called Nevada National Security Site where they detonated nuclear weapons and tested nuclear weapons back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, and 80s, in the early 90s. There were highly classified facilities used by Lockheed, by General Dynamics, by Tektronics, by E-Systems, all these different uh, companies, contract companies. They had their facilities there. So there was a lot of testing of ET technology done there also. So if I and I'm going to turn it over to Nathan because he get, he gets the next we got to share Rick. I mean, I can't just, talk, you know, OK, but the, the next you know, the, the question I would ask you, like, like I said before, your level, your percentage of confidence that there was, in fact, craft brought somewhere on that Groom Lake test range is what percentage? I'd say. Um... Uh oh, the government, the government just, okay? they just asked 80, us. I'd say 80%. 80%. 80%. Okay. Let, let me say this. Um, I knew where there was a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, differences between 
Lazar's story about S4 and what's actually there. S4 was an underground facility under S2. Mm. S2 was a facility inside the mountain underground at Papoose Lake. I'd been there. I was at S2. I was never under. I was never at S4. I was mm. never under there. I didn't have a clearance to go under there. So I don't know what's under the ground there. But I know S2, which was administrative control center for S4, been there several times. Hmm. Uh, you had to have a special security clearance, exchange badge system uh, to get to get in, in there. And then underground, you had to even have a, a different type of, of, of entry control system to get there. Well, I can tell you that I never saw anything at S4. So I don't know what's down there. Hmm. But. I saw a lot of things flying. Well, a sergeant would take a Jeep. We all had, had a CJ7 Jeeps back in those days assigned to us. We could go anywhere out there. Mm -hmm. uh, we had badges to get in almost any place. We would go out and on security patrol, so to speak. That's what we would call it. Checking <laughs> your different areas. I mean, we they had Air Force security police there. Mm -hmm. They were debt three out of Nellis. And they had, uh, and they were had high level security clearances. They guarded the internal cantonment area. The outside perimeter was all done by Wackenhut during that time period. There's civilian security. Yep. We would go out and drive around, and we go out to the test area where they would do the flying, and we would we would sit there for hours watching at night these exotic planes fly or or some kind of crafts flying, and they would fly probably hundreds of miles an hour and stop hmm. and do all these weird things. Now, as DJ can, can swear to it, and I, I've been in many, many airplanes, I jumped out of many, many airplanes. I flew many different type in, in airplanes. A pilot couldn't withstand the force, mm -hmm. the G force by stopping going hundred miles an hour. Right. Is that not right? I, I would say that's accurate to come to a complete stop. You would, uh, you'd probably get splattered if you weren't, uh, I mean, if it's an immediate stop, I would say no. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they were doing. Mm. And then one landed close to us once and it was an oval shaped object. Um, it landed, uh, I would say maybe a mile, maybe a little over a mile from us on a flat area. Uh, vehicles went up to it. Um, and they were obviously it was, it was having some sort of a problem. And eventually uh, they were able to get it up back up in the air. And what I saw, uh, it wasn't a conventional craft, uh, one, a conventional flight drones back in those days, uh, drone technology was highly classified. And I saw many, many, uh, classified drone projects going on. In fact, I was a counterintelligence officer for one particular project, uh, involving drone technology. So I know what the drones were back mm -hmm. in those days. And these weren't drones. In fact, back in those days, the order, in order to fly a drone, you'd have to have a, a, a control aircraft take off. And those control aircrafts were mm -hmm. uh, uh, 135s. They would fly mm -hmm. and they would be controlling the drones in the air. They couldn't do it on the ground back in mm -hmm. those days. Yeah, line of sight. Line of sight. You know, yeah, line, yeah, of, line of sight. Exactly. Them. Line of sight. Exactly. And so, and a lot of these planes, a lot of these drones were being launched from plane, from other planes. Uh, hmm. 
135s or 137s. Um, and, and they even had the old, um, I can't remember. They were, I think they were the box cars, a C119. Oh, like a 119. Yeah. Yeah. 119. Yeah. That they had a Car platform work, under right. it and they and there were two or four engine props. I'm not four sure. Yep. Four engine props would take off and launch these drones at a, you know, a couple thousand feet. And that's how they would test drones. So we knew when drones were being tested because we we all saw saw the control aircraft. But these weren't controlled aircrafts. There were any control aircrafts. Now some of what we were seeing, uh, I can trace to the F one seventeen, because we were there during that time period, the early eighties. I mean, I saw the one. I saw it on the ground. I saw the one seventeen on or the prototypes because they had three different prototypes. Mm-hmm. I knew they what they were doing there. The Aurora, I saw some other planes that were being tested that had never that were never made into uh, production. But I think without a doubt that there were uh, UFOs or ET crafts uh, contained at Area 51. Hmm. Oh. That's you, I'd say 80%. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> That's great. Um so Thank you. I want to I want to drift through a little bit into the speculative territory. So, yes. uh, in 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 your opinion, because uh, there's a lot of debate about this, were these crashes, gifts, or some combination of the two? Because uh, we, we've heard stories where uh, you know there's been debris fields, as you said, and then there are other stories we've heard where. It's almost like they just sort of left it with the with the keys running in the engine, the engine running. You know, the light, lights are still on. And it's just been landing, and you know, you can go ahead and take it. So, what, what's your opinion on this uh, debate? Is it is it a mixture of the two, or or one or the other? Well, I can give you what I know factually. Is Whoa, that the, that's even better? The, 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 I know for a fact that some of these crafts uh, recoveries uh, had uh, dead ETs in them. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, they crashed, and 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 I know that for a fact. I read about them. I saw the photographs. Uh, I can tell you that for a fact. Now, <clears throat> there are some occasions. I know of two occasions that I did personal research into, where they found crafts on the ground, hmm. and like you said, they were just there. They left them. Yeah. Now, one one was down in uh, Arizona, now near Yuma. Um, the person uh, that initially told the story, Wendell Stevens. I'm mm-hmm. sure you, you know who Wendell Stevens is. A uh, very good friend of mine. Wendell had uh, pictures and uh, he did a whole presentation on it. I think there's a video out there too of the of Really? This. Yeah, there's a In Yuma. video okay. of talking about it. But not, not of the actual finding of the craft, but, but by him talking about it, talking okay. about the team that went out there and recovered it from uh, – Holloman? I think it was Luke Air Force Base. Luke, Luke or, in, yeah. Luke in um, Phoenix, what's it? Right? What's the one? And then um, the uh, uh, to, uh, Davis Montham. DM. Davis yeah. Montham, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, went down there and recovered it. And uh, this thing was just on, in the desert, found by some hikers. Uh, eventually, the sheriff got there and, and the Air Force got there. And they actually were – they could fly it. They know how to fly it. So they're on the big transport pl- uh, vehicle. And I think Davis-Monthan was the closest base. Uh, that's in Tucson, yeah. 
to get it up to Tucson and to, to Davis Monthan. And uh, I don't know whatever happened to it. And, Dave, and Wendell Stephen thinks it, it would have eventually got to Area 51, but uh, I don't know that they ever learned how to fly it. So that's that's one actual ET craft that I know they just found without any bodies in it. Amazing. So, yeah, that, so that would fit that, Nathan, maybe what you're talking about. Yeah, that certainly sounds like it. Or a drone. Maybe it was doing surveillance on their part, and then it crashed for, like, electromagnetic interference or, you know, actually mm -hmm. just, you know, uh, uh, a lightning hit it and, mm -hmm. it, and it reacted. You know, EMI can just do some serious damage to something. Well, that well let, let me throw this in. When I was put off, one of the things that he was trying to work on, uh, trying to research in, and um, there's conjectures all the time, <clears throat> people saying, wait a minute, these people fly hundreds of light years or thousands of uh, light years or whatever from another planet into our solar system and crash? Oh, how can that happen? Right. <clears throat> well, Dr. Putoff did a, did a number of different papers explaining that our atmosphere uh, it, it could be distinctly different than mm -hmm. where they came from. Mm. I mean, they leave an atmosphere that is entirely different th from ours. They fly in space, which is everybody space yep. is same for Vacuum. everyone. Yep. Come mm -hmm. into our atmosphere with our gravity and our inertia systems and so forth. They could experience a whole lot of problems mm -hmm. that would cause them to crash, such as lightning and and wind shear and all sorts of different things that they wouldn't have ever encountered in their own in on their own planet so right. just i just throw that out there no I mean, it's a good theory i guess what i'm curious to get your take on with respect to this is that they're we're clearly dealing with, with a, a very intelligent a high intelligence right so what is it in your mind what kind of process do you go through to verify the truthfulness of what we are seeing and discovering because you know, if you're playing, if someone's playing a game with you and they know way more than you do about the nature of reality, or they have mastery over certain technologies, or and we've heard about, you know, that they could have uh, uh, some degree of control over even our, 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 the way we think, you know, if, if you, if you take all those things to, into consideration, does that make you question kind of what, what you see? And if it does, what are the things that eliminate? Uh, we lost Rick entirely. We from lost. The show. Oh my goodness, this is terrible. I'll take that question. Have to Nathan. repeat that question. So, yeah, why don't uh, you take that question? The nexus. Between, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it, it, it's fascinating a great stuff. Though I, he's he's yeah. He's he's phenomenal. I mean, this like he is giving us a lot of interesting things that uh, I I hadn't heard him talk about. So I'm very gratified that that he's sharing a lot. Uh, I, I kind of like what I don't know what you think, Nathan. I kind of would like to get his thing. You know, we don't want to keep him all that long because now it's been an hour at this point. Uh, I would like to get yeah. his take on on Tic Tac and what what thoughts went through sure. his head when he saw the performance of that and the interaction. I would like to get his thoughts on whether what he what does he think about if possibly some of these intelligence were were born here and originated here and are appearing mm, yeah. and disappearing, which we we in the community think that's a a, a very very plausible hypothesis, um, and I was going to mention pressure as well. What he was talking about um, when they come into our atmosphere, fourteen point seven psi of pressure. 
at, yeah. at, at, at sea level that hi rick i'm back so I don't know what's back. going on. I got high speed internet here too. Yeah, something fishy's happening here, Rick. Well, Rick, uh, somebody's probably, interfering, man. Yeah, you probably got the gist of my question, but I guess you know, as someone who has a background in intelligence and and discerning truthfulness, what are the things that you use to apply to this topic that help you get to a place where you have a high degree of confidence in what it is that you're seeing and hearing uh, about UFO? Well. <clears throat> During my time in, I learned a lot of scientific. I'm not a scientist. I, I, I am a, uh, 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 I do teach math online. So I, I don't know something about mathematics, uh, yeah, but, but I, I, I don't know anything about uh, the, the celestial navigation or, or mechanics or anything like that. Uh, so I judge a person by uh, indicators. Mm -hmm. One of the things we learned in, uh, in training um, is uh, how to interrogate yeah. interviews and interrogations, distinctly different interviewing somebody and interrogating somebody. You watch your mannerisms uh, and so forth. So I'm a pretty good judge of characters. I looked at person in their eyes if they can't maintain eye contact with me. Um, I've heard stories that were clearly out of this world, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And some of them, what what I'll do is I'll listen to every anybody at UFO conventions or the people sending me emails. I'll listen to them, and then I judge them by number one their character, what I can determine their character and personality, mm -hmm. and then also by the information, the subject matter they're they're giving me. Some of the information I hear is just total baloney. Yeah. I mean, what they claim they saw or did. Uh, I'll just say, well, you know, I wasn't there. You saw whatever you did. I I can't really make a judgment on that. Mm. Um, if it's at a UFO convention, uh, people, most, most of these people, uh, will be abductees or mm. contactees, they call them now, and mm -hmm. they'll come and they'll talk to me. Well, I had never been briefed in any programs regarding ab abductees mm -hmm. until one. I, I was, I did handle one. I could talk about that a little bit later. And so, uh, I believe that they're, now I believe at the time, I didn't, but now I believe that there's something to the abduction mm -hmm. phenomenon, definitely something to it. Yeah. And I believe a lot of people and I, and I really apologize to a lot of people over the years that I didn't believe mm -hmm. uh, I was wrong. I mean, I know everything. Uh, and, and I believe a lot of what I heard before. Uh, not, I, I, I understand what they were telling me that was, was truthful. Mm -hmm. So that's how I judge people. And I judge most of it on, what people tell me, like, for instance, I, they, they claim that they saw a aircraft, uh, they called, saw this UFO flying, and it had these lights on it. And, well, you know, I'm a trained air traffic control specialist, mm -hmm. believe it or not. I know the lighting systems of every single aircraft. I yeah. know what where the red light is. And, the, and what they're telling me is they're describing an FAA lighting pattern of an aircraft. And I right. try to tell them that. I said, well, you know what? If a UFO comes to our planet, they're not going to obey our FAA rules. <laughs> I mean, it'd be convenient if they would. It would be nice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would be nice. Be yeah, exactly. be nice. So I'm saying, uh, you know, I don't think what you saw was, in fact, a UFO. I think I think it was probably a, a, a regular aircraft, a, mm. a air, maybe an Air Force plane or or a civilian uh, uh, airliner. And so I'll judge him in that respect and so and then there's some that you just can't 
some people will uh, like one particular person. I'm not going to name the person. I do shows at Gaia. Uh, I guess you know that. Yeah, I do I not like know 20, that. Okay. I, did, I have about 20 episodes on Gaia, Cosmic okay. Disclosure with Emory Smith. Um, and, that, and there's another person there that does some shows. And, you know, he has a lot of claims about being this and that and and and, and a secret space program. So, um, he passed a polygraph examination. He passed a stress test. Uh, maybe he's telling the truth. I just don't know about any of this. So <laughs> yeah. I can't judge people anymore uh, like I like I used to. I mean, I go to UFO conventions and, and listen to people, and I want to believe them. Sure. And a lot of people tell me the truth. They 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 tell me this objects flying around. It didn't have any lights on. Well, number one, that's a good indicator that it was something probably out of the know because you can't you can't uh, excuse me you can't uh, fly a a plane unless it's under a certain altitude without a lighting system at night. You just can't sure. do that. Right. Uh, you. I mean, you can, but you're gonna you're, Very gonna, you're gonna suffer some problems. You're gonna have F-16s chasing you, and so mm -hmm. so forth. So rider. Uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, that's how I judge people to answer yeah, your no. question. No, that's great. Well, I know we want to transition to the recent stuff, DJ, but really quickly, do you feel like we're 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 kind of disentangling this though from the past, like the. As, as you mentioned, like the story seemed to be very clear. And then it kind of got pretty as the community, like allowed its imagination to go to run wild. And now we are left kind of trying to put it back together and, and form a coherent story. Do you feel like that there's been a lot of damage from the intervening years? And we're now trying to set the right record straight. And we're doing, we're, we're kind of restoring that the trust with the people and telling what's really going on oh absolutely and you know i have to blame um u.s intelligence for a lot of this because and me me being being one of them uh there were a lot of uh programs that we uh we did back in the uh, late 70s and 80s mm. that was disinformation we call them counterintelligence operations sure but we disinformed the public public we did we did some things that I'm not I'm not proud of. Uh, I can admit to it uh, uh, in disinforming uh, the Paul Benowitz case and and others, um, trying to convince a person one way or the other, convincing them that what they were seeing was in fact a UFO when it was really a classified Air Force project, or or vice versa, convincing them it was Air Force project when it was actually something we didn't know about. Yeah. So we didn't want to. Uh, a a uh, a, a um, upset public or or a panic public. So uh, the government is responsible, and that wasn't just me. There were thousands of other of uh, intelligence officers doing the exact same thing that I was doing. So uh, I think that's uh, we pu we put a a wrench in there, a monkey wrench in there, and and we we would be responsible for some of that. Mm. But on the other hand, the UFO community did it themselves sure. by. Uh, writing books uh, about things that are absolutely not true yeah. and putting uh, fear in the public. Mm. Uh, although um, I don't want to sound dramatic now or, or sound uh, upset anybody, but there are things out there that I witnessed or I read, uh, I was briefed into 
that scared me. I mean, yeah. very, I mean, really, really scared me. And believe me, I don't scare easy. I, never yeah, scare I believe easy. that. I, I believe 100% it. believe that. I mean, you I jumped into easily. an area. I jumped into an area that there was four of us that jumped into. And it was in, back in my combat control days. And mm. it was very, you know, very dangerous. Anyways, getting off that. But, you know, that really does scare me. The things that I read and I would I don't want to repeat. Some sure. of the stuff is still classified. Yeah. Some of the Fine. things that happened that that I was there and witnessed is are still classified. So there are things out there that uh, be careful what you ask for. Cause of course, yeah, I'm with you. And we, we wouldn't ask you to, to violate anything. I'm, I'm kind of curious to get your perspective on, there's a lot of theories now that are based upon uh, vehicles that we see in the air. And I've kind of stopped using the term flying in some instances, particularly with Tic Tac, because the way that it operates, it doesn't seem to interact with the air the way that uh, Bernoulli's theorem would dictate, uh, Newtonian physics would dictate, uh, you know, first and third laws of motion, these types of things. So I'm not sure that they're flying, but they're moving in our airspace. Um, because of the fact that some of these are going underwater, uh, where are you on the hypothesis that maybe they are from here and are already here and are making themselves appear or making themselves known when they want to and then disapparating or going into into another medium in the ocean when they want to what are your thoughts about that hypothesis well there are a lot of cases out there that uh pertain to uh, ufos being seen over an ocean over over a body of water disappearing into the ocean um i was never uh, never briefed in anything regarding an uh, underwater UFO. I know there were other others. Uh, I'm a member of a retired re retired intelligence officer association. We have naval uh, officers, naval intelligence officers in that, and they tell stories about what they had been briefed into regarding uh, the UFO or you uh, under surface surface under underwater USOs. You know, yeah. USOs. Yeah, excuse me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Nathan. Mm -hmm. Nathan uh usos uh and they and there's a the most classic was a as a submarine that was traveling in the this was in the 80s uh chasing a soviet submarine in the uh bering strait um and they were i don't know how deep they were but um our submarines chasing they were a thousand meters from the russian submarine all of a sudden this craft comes in to view on sonar and it comes right up in front of the the the, U, the uss submarine i can't remember what the name of it, it was a uh, anyways whatever the name of the submarine was shocking the whole crew the 80-man crew and not knowing what this thing was they first thought that it might have been something that the soviets had fired at them mm -hmm. uh, maybe an underwater tor big torpedo or something but the thing just stopped so it forced our submarine stopped. Mm. And now back in those days, they explained this, this, uh, in fact, I actually talked to spoke with not on, not in person, but on phone of the submarine commander back in those days, they didn't have monitors. They didn't have, they didn't have, uh, uh cameras. Mm -hmm. Everything was on sonar. Mm -hmm. So everything was sonar pictured and they see this picture and none of the sonar operators, the experts could figure out what it was. It seemed to have mass, but it, then it seemed to be 
less dense than something that they like a, a metal object. Wow. They couldn't figure it out, but it did give the, the, the Soviets uh, a chance to get away, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And this thing stayed with us for a long time when eventually we surfaced and there was a, uh, a destroyer or a Navy ship some distance away, but came up when they, when they surfaced, this huge object came out of the water. It came up above the surface and it flew above him away. Now, <laughs> you know, he says, I didn't believe in UFOs or anything <laughs> like that. Now USOs. Now what, what was that? It couldn't right. be one of ours. Could it? Mm. So after that, and this was years after I got out, uh, I tend to think there's something to it. Now, whether we they have a base under the ocean, like 32%, only 32% of our oceans have ever been mapped. So, uh, you know, we got millions of miles of oceans out there that we don't know what's down there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were taught, they just recently I, I was listening to somebody talk about the Indian Ocean the Southern Indian Ocean uh, near uh, Antarctica, none of that's ever been mapped. They don't know wow. what's down there. Okay. So hmm. could there be bases down there? They're b- very possible. Could it be some sort of an interdimensional craft? Um, I'm not so much into that. I'm not. Hmm. I, I uh, Dr. Putoff did a paper on that too. And you really have to be um, um, schooled in, uh, theoretical physics mm-hmm. to understand the what would it take to fly something in an interdimension and then we see it. You know, it's 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 really complex. So yeah. I, I'm not sure. It, it, I mean, maybe it, maybe there is, and I just don't know about it. And and I, I mean, I, there's a lot of things out there that I that you're probably, open to it. Yeah, open to it. I mean, very open to it. Yes. Sure. I, well, I, think, I, I just want to say one more thing to mm-hmm, Rick before sure, I turn it to Nathan. Yeah. Rick, I know it'll give you great pleasure to know that in my head, when I hear the names Rick Doty and Hal Putoff and <laughs> Kit Green and and Admiral Wilson, like this mysterious music goes off in my head. It's amazing. You're one of the people that makes that happen. I'm sorry I'm being an idiot, but it's just so much fun. You're so much fun, Rick. Thanks for playing. Yeah, I enjoyed having you on the show. Well, and and I guess I'm curious, Rick. So over time, uh, as our science has advanced, you know, we have gone from uh, understanding that, you know, we're in a we're in a galaxy, we're a planet there. We didn't even know there were many planets for until very in the last, I think, you know, three de- decades or so outside of our solar system. And then we started imaging them and seeing them. But then going into quantum physics, understanding quantum physics has changed the way that we look at the world. And then, of course, we're on the cusp of artificial intelligence. And we you know, people talk about AI like AI is everywhere, but we really haven't yet achieved AI. We're, we're, but we are close and we're working on getting there. But we it's within reach. And my point here is. As our science, as our understanding of what we are capable of changes, does that impact our understanding of what this actually is? Well, absolutely. <clears throat> In fact, the the scientific community, the secret scientific community, the uh, DARPA scientists, da- scientists in the in the, the secret rooms at Los Alamos and Sandia mm-hmm. and Lawrence Livermore. Um, they're doing exactly that as, as our technology advances, our scientific understanding of the universe advances, we go in and bring out these objects that we found 
years ago and try to understand them more. Now, with our advanced learning, uh, we might be able to understand this object that we that we found that came from an ET, the energy device or the communications device or the the propulsion system. Um, and and we, and we do that. And 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 Dr. Putoff has has publicly talked about doing that, as mm-hmm. as other scientists have. That okay, as as we understand science more, but the problem there is this technology that we're looking at came from an entirely different civilization, in a different different uh, maybe obviously different solar system, maybe even a different galaxy, although. I think the consensus among Dr. Putoff and most other scientists is it would be from our galaxy. We we just can't believe that somebody could travel uh, from from uh, you know a billion light years away or a hundred million right. or something to our planet. So we would we would think that most of of these were in our 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 galaxy, yeah. and and but. They're made with a different technology, different materials. So we may never understand alien technology. We might understand some. We might, as Dr. Putoff puts it, we might understand the concept. This Mm -hmm. is a propulsion system. This works by something. Mm -hmm. We just have to figure out what. And something could be an item or a... a, um, element that we don't have here on this planet mm-hmm. that they have in some other planet. And then there's a, it, there's a, also a theory that was uh, um, put out some years ago. Stan Friedman talked about this in his book. Uh, if in fact something came from another galaxy, a different type of galaxy than ours, the physics on that galaxy could be entirely different than the physics here. Now, I don't personally believe that, but because it's just all one, one, one universe. I mean, because I'm not a scientist, though, but I, but I understand what two and two is for, and you know, I can understand mathematics might be the same, but or it could be some difference. But um, I, I think that we have to really advance our knowledge of the of 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 the universe before we could ever try to understand some of the ET technology. Um, Rick there, I know there's like, there's so much to get to, uh, Nathan and I are struggling thinking about, but, but we can, and we're not going to do it. We're going to wrap up. So we just have a couple of more questions if that's okay. Sure. What were the emotions that you, uh, felt? And I know that you don't, uh, your job is basically to look at an event and not apply emotion to it, to be dispassionate, to be analytical to see what's going on and then make an assessment based on what you've seen. And with that, with all that happened regarding Tic Tac with Dave Fravor, Alex, Chad Underwood, uh, the guys and gals that were on the uh, USS Princeton, uh, the, the uh, Aegis radar cruiser, um, the E2 Hawkeye folks, what was your assessment of, of that? How did you process that information and, and what did you think about it? I interviewed, or I, I sat and talked with, I didn't interview them, I, I sat and I spoke with a lot of them mm-hmm. at, uh, at different lo- locations, some of the UFO mentioned, in other places. Uh, we were brought together in California 
uh, about a year and a half ago. And, and, and uh, it was at a hotel room and it was a round table discussion. Um, they were every single person that witnessed the Tic Tac, the USS Nimitz or the, the, uh, the, um, the Roosevelt case, the pilots, um, they were all very passionate. I, I, I believe everything they said, uh, they spoke from the heart. Uh, they didn't exaggerate, you know, amazing thing about pilots. I mean, and I really admire pilots, of course, TJ, you is that they, they are great observers mm -hmm. and they'll tell you what they see and that's it. And, um, uh, and, and they, they follow, they follow instructions. I and mean, of course they have to fly in this plane at, you know, one small mistake. And I mean, and I saw it from the ground when I was a combat controller, you know, I tell a pilot, you know, you got to hold in this one holding pattern and it might be a really small holding pattern, but boy, this F4 pilot's doing it or this, you know, whatever plane he's flying. Uh, and they're doing exactly what I'm telling them to do because there's six other planes. But, but, I, but I admire everything, I admire the, the observation abilities of pilots. And I didn't hear anything from any of these, uh, either the air crew or the ground crew, um, uh, that uh, the 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 uh, radar plane, the, the Navy, the what Hawkeye. was that called? The E two yeah, Hawkeye. E two Hawkeye. Um, I, I didn't see any. I didn't uh, see anything that I I thought was out of the ordinary. I believed. I believed them. The 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 pilot, uh, the male and female pilot, the co-pilot were flying against a tic tac. Perfect observation articulate and everything mm -hmm. talking about the speed that they were flying, the different headings that they were flying and everything. I mean, I, I don't find anything out of the ordinary with anyone that witnessed uh, these things. How, I, I think what I was really getting at is how, how did you feel about what that did that craft represent a different level of uh, some different performance characteristics because you probably hadn't heard a lot of interactions where you have you now have an FA-18 that's in a in an orbit in a little bit of a Mexican standoff with a tic tac after he pointed his nose at that object on the ground uh, uh, that was hovering above the ocean. So I, I was wondering if that represented a, a little bit of a shift in the, the the paradigm in our interactions with these uh, these craft. Oh yeah, their description of what they observed uh, was something uh, was a craft that I I had not uh, seen or heard uh, that were was clearly probably uh, based on my knowledge and my uh, my history uh, 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 that wasn't one of ours. It was definitely <laughs> either either something the Russians or Chinese had that you know they, they developed exotic technology or it was something from from out of this world. But, but I did have an occasion, if I could just interject real quick. Please. In Area 51, there was a UFO incident that was flying. The craft was flying inside uh, Nellis Test and Training Range. Um, we had just – the F-16s were brand new back in the early 80s. And we just got two new ones on alert at Nellis. They flew out after this object. Now, we know ground controllers knew – it wasn't one of ours. There was nothing supposed to be flying. And these two F-16 pilots, 
Uh, and I was happened to be near a radio uh, listening to, they were on a, the 230, I remember the frequency, 234.150 band. Wow. And, and they Uniform. were, they were talking back and forth and, and listening and seeing what they were trying to chase. Mm. And they said, this is exotic. We can't, we can't keep up with this. And, and these are brand new F-16s. Mm-hmm. So yes. I, I did have an occasion to witness something like that. That, that is an awesome, awesome narrative, Nick. Thank you, uh, Rick. Thank you for telling that. And this, this uh, F- F-16 still is an amazing aircraft, and we're still updating them and flying them. I got to hear uh, Terry Vertz, the astronaut who has this podcast where he's interviewing his friend who's an F th- current F-35 pilot, and they're going over the differences, and it's amazing. But the F-16 remains uh, an absolutely amazing uh, aircraft still today. So, <laughs> um, all right. So, um, I think we, we really kind of want to wrap it up now. Uh, Rick, I guess we would ask you, um, what disclosure, what level of disclosure do you think the American people should get? Uh, how much do you think they should know? Um, and why do you, why do you feel that way? Whatever that level is. I think they should, they should get the, uh, <clears throat> the, the basics I don't think there's there's a lot of information out there that they sh- they they don't want to know, or they they probably shouldn't know. Uh, highly technical stuff, uh, technology that we developed from the ETs, uh, propulsion and uh, fl- aerodynamics, uh, cloaking uh, things like that. No, we we're not going to disclose that stuff because mm-hmm. it's going to get out to to the our enemies. Uh, I think they sh- they should know the history. I have no problems with them knowing the history from 1947 on. And, 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 and if there are, if the government has information about something that happened before that, that I don't know about, uh, I think they should disclose it. The, the basic historical facts about our contacts with UFOs from 1947 on, I believe they should know. They have the right to know. And I think there was a program years ago that wanted to do that. And I, I know of people that were involved in that thing that program uh and they try to get the public conditioned uh, uh movies like the close uh, 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 uh the day the earth should still 1951 mm-hmm. that was supposedly controlled by an air force captain who, who had actually wrote the script to that mm-hmm. and so i mean all these these different uh, programs over the years um i think we were trying to condition the public and somehow um somehow it got screwed up i don't know if it was by whoever's controlling this that I don't know at all or by our government. I don't know, but we, we should have a disclosure. And I think Skin, Skinwalker Ranch, uh, Skinwalker, the new the Pentagon, I think that's somewhat of a uh, attempt to, to disclose some of it. Um, the construct that you believe, I, I, I hate to bring this up again, and, I, and I, I hate to close with this, but people are interested to know is that how we would obscure this and this MJ-12 business uh, we spoke about earlier about how do you how do you get people who have a need to know not to know it? Do you know what kind of a construct there was to be able to obfuscate this information or at least contain it? within a relatively small group of people? 
No, I I wish I knew. <laughs> I you know that that question is is one for somebody well above my pay grades at grade, but um, I just you know I, I I just don't I I don't know um, the yeah, MJ twelve documents. That's we could we could do a whole program on that. That's okay. That's okay. I I mean. I, I really appreciate your candor. I just, I had to ask, I had to get that one in there, Rick, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I understand. But, um, yeah. but, Rick, do you, uh, yeah. do you, do you agree with the sort of sentiment expressed by Reagan at the, at the UN convention? Um, Ooh, you know, that, that this is a topic that would really kind of bring the world together. Uh, you know, in fact, Lou Elizondo, I think just yesterday in an interview, you know, was really trying to call for, a global effort to understand this and to work together on this topic. Uh, do you share that sentiment? Do you think that, do you share that optimism that this would be a unifying factor for the world? Yes. Yes. I agree with, with that statement that Lou made. I, I, I agree. And we should be a universal a topic that brought through the United Nations um, where each country can come forth and, and, um, Spill the beans, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's ever going to happen because there's um, there's so much information that's it's compartmented from our government that we're not going to disclose. And there's I know a lot from the, R- the Russians. I mean, we can do an entire show on that, mm-hmm. uh, what the Russians knew, what the Soviets knew, what the Chinese knew. So no, I don't think that's going to ever happen. I wish, I wish it, w- I wish it would. Mm-hmm. I w- wish we could have a full disclosure by. Uh, like the United Nations. Anything that would bring the world together. Um, yeah. Rick, I, I really can't thank you enough for coming here and sharing some time with us and having some fun with us, yeah. uh, laughing with us a little bit <laughs> yes. and, and talking to us. It, it, uh, I really mean this as not only a podcast host, but for a fellow Air Force brother. It was an absolute honor to have you here, sir. Um, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for your service too, DJ. And thank it's a you. pleasure to know you, Nathan. Likewise, Rick. Hope to have, uh, have you on again soon sometime. Oh, absolutely. Rick Doty, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so Ooh. much. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>